Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. That a lot of guys that I, or veterans that I work with, they already feel like they're wasting time, that they shouldn't need this. And so they have that self-condemnation. So then when they reach out and there's a frustration, be it the financial resources, be it time resources, then that's, then that's another problem right there. They're not going to continue to try to access care through a frustrating system. When a civilian enters any branch of the military, they go through a period of basic military training that's designed to change the way they think and act to turn them into a soldier, sailor, marine, airman, or coast guardsman. This is seen as an important time in the individual's life critical for the proper transition from being someone not in the military to part of one of the greatest fighting forces on the planet. After a period of time in the military, however, there's little done in any branch of the service to help that service member transition their mindset to life as a veteran. As we often say here in the Change Your POV podcast network, after one leaves the military, they're never going to be a civilian again. And they're no longer a service member. They're this entirely different third thing, a veteran, with all the experiences, knowledge, strengths, and challenges that go along with that word. One of the most overlooked aspects of transition is a service member's mental health and wellness. If the veteran has their heart, mind, body, and spirit in the right place, and has a support network of family and friends to rely upon, then they're most likely going to have a successful transition. Those things are not in place. Things can get challenging. I'm your host, Dwayne France, and I'm going to take you through a veteran mental health boot camp to give you some advanced training for your brain. These episodes will cover the many different aspects of veteran mental health that I, as both a combat veteran and a clinical mental health counselor, see, experience, and support veterans with daily. I'm going to be joined by both veterans and mental health professionals talking about what you need to know about the stigma against seeking support, the different areas we need to understand, and provide some resources for when you think you might need them. Get up in the morning and out of the rack, because this is some information that could very well save your life. Welcome to Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing podcast. Uh, again, and as always, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, to listen to us. Uh, we know that you could have chosen to listen to many other podcasts, or even no podcast at all, but uh, you're choosing to listen to us. And you're, you're picking up in the beginning of this series uh, where we're looking at veteran mental health beyond PTSD and TBI. Uh, we're, we're first, before we start talking about the specific conditions, we're going to talk about some of the uh, barriers that exist uh, for veterans and service members uh, in seeking mental health. You know, we just got done with a conversation with uh, David Smith about sort of the internal stigma that keeps veterans internally from reaching out. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the things that exist sort of in the environment that keep veterans from being able to, to, to access treatment or barriers that exist. And so to join me, um, I've got a, a colleague that uh, I think that we've worked uh, sort of in the same place and for the same, uh, in the same community for a couple of years now. Uh, and her name is 
is Aaron, and uh, Aaron is with uh, the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. So, Aaron, welcome to the show. Hi, Dwayne. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Uh, thank you for, for making the time. Um, really looking to have conversations with, with mental health professionals who are serving veterans, uh, and you've been doing that for quite a while. So uh, before we get yeah. into that, how about you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and uh, sort of what you're doing? Well, I've been a therapist specializing in post-traumatic stress disorder since 2003. Um, I've been with the Lane Center about three and a half years. Um, they have a specialty clinic called the Veterans Health and Trauma Clinic that treats um, primarily those involved in the military, whether or not veterans, active duty, family members those sorts of things. Uh, I'm an EMDR approved consultant through Emdria. Um, in my spare time, I like to draw and write and, and go on Jeep adventures. Um, but PTSD and helping veterans is my passion ever since I landed in this position. And, and I'm just grateful to be able to be on your show today and be able to talk about um, helping folks improve their access to care and what might block that for them. So in, in specializing in trauma since 2003, um, what really uh, sort of drew you or got you involved in veteran mental health specifically? Because that's sort of a broad working with trauma, of course, teens and families and maybe things like that. But when did you first start working with veterans and why did you, why did you work with veterans specifically? Well, through some of my work with families, I started to work with more dependents and uh, dependent adolescents, and it really became a passion for me to get to work with the family unit, and then understanding um, the experience of the veterans, both when they were deployed as well as when they came home to deal with the family as it was. Um, being in this community in Colorado Springs, I take a lot of pride in our veteran population, and it was really important to me to be able to do what I could to really help folks who've been in this situation. Um, it was a learning curve, that's for sure. Um, you know, I know that you were really, really an expert on cultural competency and in bridging the gap between civilian therapists and, and the veteran community. And so that was something that I had to, to really work on, especially that first year, really understanding this community. Um, but I tell you, once I've started, I, I can't stop. I love working with vets. And and so from even in 2003 and in the very early years, um, we're going to have Dr. Kidd on uh, a later show in this series talking about substance abuse, um, but he bridged the gap. He started his uh, substance abuse program in 1999 and saw the, the shift um, as, um, as post-9-11 veterans started coming back. You started seeing that with families, the impact of maybe multiple deployments or or even uh, mental health concerns? You saw that first on the families you were working with? I did, and that started probably in around 2006 or 2007 um, when my work really honed in there. I did work with um, victims of domestic violence initially, and we saw some of that where I was at, but really things started to heat up for the folks I worked with, the community I worked with in the middle of the 2000s. And so, and that's uh, having worked um, even with families and then with veterans for, for going on, you know, these past 10 years, um, that's why I really appreciate coming in and talking about what you see as some of the barriers um, that either keep a veteran from accessing services or, or even the, the barriers that, that veterans experience um, sort of in the community. So maybe we can just start there. What do you think, when I say barriers to care when it comes to veteran mental health, um, what comes to mind for you? Well, one of the first things I think is is just finding an access point. For most of the veterans I work with, I think that that's one of the hardest things. There are a lot of community agencies and community partners that I work with and that I know you work with and there are a lot of well-meaning people, and it's hard for them to find a common ground or find a, a meeting point where they can make a veteran feel comfortable coming in. Um, you know, we attended, um, I attended the VA Suicide Prevention Summit um, last fall, last summer at some point, and I was amazed that 
at the support there is in the community because I don't hear about it as much from the from the folks that I work with. And I work with primarily male veterans. So please excuse me if I say guys a lot. Um, I do have female veterans as well. Um, I just default to that sometimes. I mean no disrespect. Um, but I think that, you know, one of the major things is, is being able to bridge that gap between awareness of services and the services that are that are out there for the veteran. Um, there seems to be a missing a missing access point there, I see. So, yeah, no, that's great. That's um, a missing access point for mental health specifically or a missing access point for maybe services in general? Um, well, you know, on the mental health end of things, that's that's where I see a lot of that. Um, but, but overall, I think that there are so many well-meaning um, charities charitable organizations and nonprofits as well as for-profit places that really want to do good services. And they, you know, and maybe this is part of where you come in with your cultural competency ideas. People don't know how to speak to veterans. Um, people, people don't know how to be where they want to be necessarily. Um, it, it's a, it's a different, I think it's a, it's a different culture, obviously. And I'm not sure that civilian populations really understand all the time, how to, how to get a good access there um, and how to, you know, how to reach out. And so I think that kind of one of the first major barriers is veterans not knowing what's out there um, at all um, in right. some cases. And, and I also don't wonder if it's just a matter of too many choices, right? You know, we know that uh, psychologically too many choices, um, you know, analysis paralysis. If I have 30 saving flavors of ketchup, uh, I'm just going to stand there and stare at it because it, there's just too many choices. Right. I call right. it. Right, uh, right, and walk out without it. Yeah. yeah, and not even, you know, just be like, forget it, I'm done, and I'm just not going to eat with ketchup. But I call it starving at the feast. You know, there are so many resources, and everybody's clamoring for the veteran's attention, um, and everybody's trying to help the veteran. But there's so much chaos going around that ultimately the veterans just sort of like, I don't know where to start, so I'm just not going to start at all. And so right, it's, yeah, right. you're right. I think that's a big one. And, you know, also I think that some veterans have had negative experiences with mental health and services in the past. Um, you know, maybe while they were getting out of whatever branch they were in, you know, at, at one point, and there's there's this idea that, you know, there's all these smiling people ready to help them. And they're like, you know, I, I don't want your help. I don't need your help. Um, you guys are all, all the same and that sort of thing. And so, and so I think that, that service providers being able to understand that and understand their approach to this population would be a critical thing. And, and yes, I have been, um, uh, rather gracious for some of our colleagues who purport to help veterans um, that may be less than helpful for veterans. When you say they have that bad experience uh, with a clinician, um, that once a veteran has a bad experience with one mental health provider, they they sort of extrapolate that to all mental health providers. And then, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I think people mean well. I think, and again, I'm going to refer to your cultural competency stuff. I, I think that people don't understand that it's a completely different culture. And so the kind of things that work in your community mental health center or in your private practice don't necessarily translate to this, to this population. And, and so on, on our end of things and on the service provider end of things, I think that being able to reach out in a way that is effective and is respectful is important. Yeah, I think that, uh, and, and you said before, you mentioned a couple times, being well-meaning, but well-meaning is not enough. Um, the road to disaster is paved with good intentions, right? Right, right. You know, our, our uh, uh, again, a, another uh, value colleague, um, uh, Josh Kramer, who you know, he's uh, coming on. Oh, yeah. So Josh is going to be talking about the family systems aspect uh, coming up in a later episode. But Josh tells this funny story, and, uh, and I relate it for the audience, that uh, he was at a community meeting. And uh, a very nice, pleasant little uh, older lady came up to him and, and knew that he was a mental health professional and said that uh, she wants to connect with him because she makes soap. And the soap that she makes um, has specific fragrances in it. And if the veterans would just wash with this soap, then they would be cured of the PTSD. 
and my wife would say, bless her heart. Um, but bless it's, her heart, right. Bless yeah. her heart. But, you know, so very well-meaning, very, yes, nice, but PTSD is not dirt that can be washed off or whatever. But, but it's not effective. And, and so it, maybe right. that's, that's a barrier is that there are so many well-meaning people that are not understanding mental health in general or, or even how to specifically help effectively. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably one of the first barriers. If, if I'm a veteran going through the system then and I can't find the right service, that's my first barrier. Um, you know, I'm going to become unmotivated. I'm going to possibly give up. You know, like you said, I'm just not going to eat with ketchup. Um, other, other, the next point is finding, once you find the service, once a veteran finds the service, is being able to access that service. Um, you know, I, I know as well as I'm sure you do that a lot of the places that, that provide services for veterans are flooded. Um, and, you know, again, it's that idea of how hard do I have to try to get this help because I already am suffering. I'm already struggling. And so once, once a veteran reaches out, and this is true for all folks, once you reach out so many times and you feel like you're not successful, um, there's, there's that access lost again. And so I think finding access to good providers that have availability um, along that line is also really necessary. I mean, we have an enormous veteran population here. Yes. And go ahead. And I, I, just to give people context, again, Erin uh, and I are in Colorado Springs, but um, in, in even the updates over the last census, uh, 98,000 veterans, just individuals who identify as veterans, live in and around El Paso County. Uh, that's not counting our active duty population from five military installations, and that's not counting spouses and children. Uh, and it's a town of, of a half a million you know, people or so, um, medium-sized U.S. city. Uh, so even if you look at that, let's say, you know, rounded up 100,000, um, even the prevalence rate of PTSD, um, even the lowest one uh, of 11%, um, that's 11,000 veterans in El Paso County that may be struggling with, um, you know, PTSD or some other mental health concern. We don't have the capacity for that. If, you know, if, if me and Aaron and every therapist who is culturally competent, or even every therapist in Colorado Springs, if every veteran woke up tomorrow and said, I'm going to make an appointment with a mental health professional because that's what I should do, there's no way that we could service the demand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then on top of that, then you get to the more systemic or um, procedural sort of barriers, which is funding for services. Not every veteran is able to access cost-effective services um, within the different structures that are there. <clears throat> Not every veteran has knows, knows how to access those services. And I, I think that there's just a lot of complications along that process. And for for some folks who have a really low frustration tolerance, and you know, I think one of the things that you may have spoken with um, a previous guest before is is this idea that a lot of guys that I are veterans that I work with, they already feel like they're wasting time that they shouldn't need this, and so they have that self condemnation. So then, when they reach out and there's a frustration, be it the financial resources, be it time resources. Then that's, then that's another problem right there. They're not going to continue to try to access care through a frustrating system. Yeah, veterans don't need much of a reason to avoid mental health treatment. Um, <laughs> right, right. Any right. reason is a good reason. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, that's, it's, a, it's a sad reality in a lot of this stuff. You know, you read about it in the papers. You, right? I don't know if people read papers anymore. They get their news on the Internet. But I, it's, you know, there's, we, we send folks to war and then we expect them to come back and we don't have the infrastructure to care for them in a lot of places. And, and that, of course, is true for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, you know, of course, you and I work with our, our local uh, community-based outreach clinic and, and we have colleagues. Um, and, and I'm sure that you do, and we've talked about this before, have immense respect for clinicians uh, that we personally know, of course, here in uh, in Colorado Springs, they're just overwhelmed. Oh, they're. I mean, it's incredibly overwhelming. There just isn't the capacity. I the the folks that I work with through the VA are, I mean, the ones that I work with are great people who really care. 
um, there's just not enough time. There's not enough hours in the day. And so then when we're uh, community providers like you and I in different capacities um, on a local level um, or uh, when, when national organizations such as the Cohen Veterans Network, we had Anthony Hassan in on one of our earliest podcasts, um, or, or the Headstrong Project, uh, which, which you're working with, you know, even though this capacity is there, Again, if all the veterans, I think somebody once described it to me as you keep wanting me to come knock on the door, but when I knock on the door, I expect somebody to answer. And so then when nobody answers, I'm just going to walk away. Absolutely. And I think I like that analogy a lot because I think that that that's true. Or when when somebody asks for identification or proof of of insurance when you they answer the door. That's another thing I think that I come across when I have some folks trying to access service, non-mental health services, because I try to link to different providers for different things. And, and then there's 20 pages of paperwork proving that they're a veteran or they need to talk about their worst traumatic experience on the phone to a stranger. You know, these are things that are, I mean, I understand the process. I understand why there's a process, but, but it's really hard. And the people that are capable of going through that process may not necessarily be the ones who most need the service, if that makes sense. Right. You know, I mean, and there's so those additional barriers. But but there's a point I think that I'd, I'd like to talk about for a minute is um, we're at the you and I um, as, uh, as as caring individuals who are competent in our craft. We want to help veterans, um, but we're also mental health professionals. You know, we have a master's degree, um, much like uh, anyone else with an advanced degree. Um, and of course, we have our own mortgages and bills and things. And and so I get the sense that some people say, well, you know, you should just see veterans for free. You should just, you know, you should, you shouldn't charge veterans for their mental health services. Um, and, and that's not even realistic because you wouldn't, you would have even less providers in that. Yeah, that's always a really hard one, you know, because because I don't want to charge somebody for coming in and I got to eat. Um and and so I, you know, I think that this falls on on different different areas and you know, I I don't want to go off on a tangent or anything. I do believe that 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 our country needs to take care of veterans and they need to take care of the providers of those veterans in some way. Um it's I think that working with veterans has been the hardest job I've ever had, and that includes working with, um, you know, victims of, of violence and torture and those sorts of things. But it's also the it's also the most rewarding. It's the one I look forward to the most every day. Um, and so I have a passion and a commitment for it. And you know, we don't get rich in this field, and nobody nobody wants to. But but we do have to eat, and we have to navigate those those systems as well. Um, there are programs in place that make that harder for providers in order to get access to the funds to help the veterans. Right. And okay. To say, yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, that's exactly. And, and again, it's a barrier that we must contend with as professionals, um, you know, that, uh, that, that the community might say, well, you know, you should just see veterans for free. Um, you know, and, and, and many professionals do much like give an hour as they donate time, um, to to a wonderful uh, program, but you can't you can't build a practice on that because if if you're not paid, then you're not there doing that. I mean, it's it's much like uh, trying to find pro bono medical service or pro bono legal services. A lawyer cannot build a legal practice on not charging, you know, and, and so it's a, this is a challenge. Nobody wants to talk about money. You know, money is the, the, the horrible thing, but the fact is, is if the veteran doesn't have the funds to pay for their treatment, just like they don't have the funds to pay for their electric bill, um, that money has to come from somewhere. Uh, and so, you know, you and, and, and the Lane Center there at UCCS and, and me with my program, trying to find other resources to get other people to pay us to see veterans so that it's not the veterans cost. And that goes into the, the responsibility of the, the country in many ways um, to support that. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more on that and that end, Wayne. And I think that, you know, the, the Cohen Foundation that you mentioned, as well as the Headstrong Project that you mentioned, I mean, there are some fabulous organizations, some fabulous philanthropy 
philanthropic, there we go, organizations that, that are really committed to that. Um, and, and that's great for us to have. I think we just need more. Yeah. And, and the, uh, maybe this is for me, mental health was always, or, or is not just veteran mental health. There's a stigma against it in the community, just as there's a, a stigma, an internal stigma against it, uh, in the veteran. Um, but, uh, it's one of those sort of afterthought things that there should be only if a veteran needs it, then they go somewhere else and, and they get that there. Right. You know, um, it's sort of this shed that's in the back that nobody talks about. And that's really sort right, of, the, and I think, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, that, I mean, I just think that's an important point. I think that, that the mental health stigma just in general is, is a big deal and seeking mental health treatment is a big deal. And those in mental health treatment feel that, and I think that there's a double layer on top of, of, of that for veterans. Um, there's been a lot of bad press in regards to veteran mental health and veterans who needed mental health services and didn't get them. And, and I think that people then really don't want to have to deal with it. You know, there are those questions where they, that person needs to be better. Don't let them near me sort of thing. And, I, and then that's heartbreaking. You know, there's a whole other layer there. That again, why should I bother when nobody wants me around anyway? Those sorts of things that are that are not true, but that feel true. I mean, they are actually they are true in some situations. Right. I think and, that you know one of the oh, go ahead. No, and that's a, just to touch on that real quick is is you know everybody says I love veterans. Um, I you know the yellow ribbons and, and wave the flag and and I want to support the vets unless I have one sitting next to me in the next cubicle. Or unless I have one in front of me because, oh, they might, you know, if they deployed to combat, they might have the PTSD and that's a lie, right? But there's, but there's those stereotypes at a distance. We love them as heroes, but when they're up close, they're a little sketchy. Do you sense that? Right. Oh, no. I I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to upset anyone, but I, I think that's an absolute truth. I actually was working with an unnamed organization in, in trying to get one of my guys access to, to care um, through through them um, at a residential center. And, you know, I was talking to the screener and she was like, well, do you think he can tolerate this? Do you think he can manage it? I'm like, he has four deployments. Like, he, he needs this. Like, I'm sending him here because he needs it, not because he's going to to make your your, your newsletter as a, as a veteran success, I would like that, but it's not, you know, it's not for me about you having good outcomes so that you can say you help the veterans. It's, it's about me getting help for the veterans who need it. And, you know, and I, it just made me feel kind of icky. Like, who do you think we work with? Um, mental health is a, is a serious issue and, and not everybody can be the poster child on your website. Um, because these are real people with real issues who have done real things in, in service to this country. Um, anyway, that it, 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 I, I was upset for days over that. Right. I mean, and that's the thing is, is, um, is just these assumptions of, um, I, I'll, and, and actually I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, but there's a, a guest post on the, the blog, um, where, uh, he talks about being one of those weird veterans in the workplace that uh, that they were treating him with kid gloves, that they said, you know, oh, if you have an episode, um, then uh, you can take a break or, you know, and everybody was just kind of beating around the bush. Um, and in another story of which uh, uh, my, one of my fellow co-hosts, uh, Jeff Adamek, on his show um, talks about how he once made an offhand remark of uh, killing somebody with kindness and he left the room and found out they had a 30 minute conversation about you could it, it, do we need to report it? I mean, can he kill somebody? Is it possible to kill somebody? Does that mean he would be kind? Well, you know, and it's just, and it was just any other offhand remark, but the fact that he was a combat veteran led people to make different assumptions. And so that's a challenge. Like you said, that just says veterans, forget it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> that is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. I, I mean, I, you know, in, in some way we have to honor and respect that the culture is different. I mean, that's true. And in the other, they're just people. I mean, these are people like, and, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's the heartbreaking thing is when I work with my folks day in and day out, they're just trying to be people and they're not trying to be the weird guy at the bus station that nobody wants to sit by because he's wearing heaven forbid camouflage pants, you know, and, you know, I mean, that's, 
so so I think that that the you know environmental stigma forces isolation. Why would I go out? Why would I get help? Why would I do these things? Because it's much easier for me to just hide, and I'm not a problem to people. Um, the the veterans that I work with, one team that runs through, I would say every single one. Now we never say 100%, but on currently the folks I work with, 100% of them don't want to be a burden. Right. And we know that that a sense of burdensomeness is one of the highest risks of suicide. It increases the risk of suicide. And so you take a population who is used to serving a greater mission, you take away their mission, and then so suddenly they're not, in their eyes, they're not doing anything good. But in fact, they're on the opposite end of that, they think. And we reinforce that in our communities and with these stigmas by making them feel like they're a burden when they're absolutely not. So why not isolate? I, th- I think I hear that so much. None of my folks wants to be a burden. They often say, I- I'm sorry, I'm wasting your time. And I, you know, it, it just shocks me because, you know, first off, I get to decide if somebody's wasting my time and I- I- you're not it. And, and I mean, but that's the sense that they get. These are people of duty. These are people of honor. These are people who, regardless of what they've gone through and been through, don't want to cause trouble anymore or be a burden. And we, we, continue to perseverate on that, that these people are different and need to be stayed away from. Right. And that shows how complicated and how um, sort of uh, connected both the external stigma and the internal stigma uh, can be. Um, you know, I call it, uh, you know, the villain victim and vindicator, you know, so so either they're this, uh, they're this crazed John Rambo going to, you know, take over the town and shoot up the place. Uh, or there's some broken-winged bird, or a three-legged dog, and oh, you poor baby, or oh, I just want to, oh, come on, you know, um, or right, here's some soap. Yeah, here's some soap, and you know, but in in I, you know, if you treat me like a villain, I can show you how much a villain I'm going to be, you know, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I don't like to be called a victim, and it, and and I'll throw that back in your face, or in in some cases, some veterans like fine. You want to, you know, treat me like a victim and, and give me everything. I'll take all you can give me, you know. And, and so it can be the the manner, the stereotype can become reality uh, if it is um, if it's perpetuated by the community. Right. If the community pushes it hard enough, we get what we ask for in that way. Right. And and right. that's not at all that's not at all helpful for these folks. You know, it's just not at all helpful. Um, you know, there are, there, are, there are people with complicated situations, like all people have complicated situations. They require cultural competency, like all people require cultural competency. We don't need to tiptoe, but we need to be respectful. And I think that's, that's a main line in regards to all treatment providers. You know, if handing out soap actually worked, that would be fabulous. Um, understanding that it's deeper than that. Is, is a is a bigger deal and understanding how to help these folks feel like that you're actually, you know, an ally that you get it. No, no, I can't get it. I was never in combat. Um, I'm a civilian, always been a civilian, married a civilian. Um, I don't know what it's like there. However, that's up to you to tell me your story because your story is different as a veteran. Each veteran has a different story, but there are common themes again with that cultural competency and the story you know, I was involved in a, a show through UCCS. It was a reading of several plays put together um, by the theater department um, through their program, the uh, Homefront Project, which I know you're familiar with. And the the director of this, his name is Max. He's a wonderful guy. Picked together several pieces of Shakespeare in this first reading. And, and the story of war was the same. And the story of post-traumatic stress disorder was the same kind of throughout the ages. And so... So there's, there is a similarity that runs from, from as far back as Shakespeare and, and even further. They'll, they'll be doing another play in, in March that will kind of attest to that. And, and I like that you, and of course, that you brought up, and not that you were um, hiding anything at all, but that you're not a veteran, uh, you've never served in combat, uh, and yet you're effective in working with veterans. I, I think one of the things is because you've taken the time and the effort to learn to become uh, culturally competent. Um, sometimes it can be a challenge for me because veterans will, you know, will be talking about something that I can tell that maybe we might need to address, um, you know, a memory. And then they'll they'll get to, you know, maybe a, a hard part and then they'll say, oh, well, 
you know what it was like because you were there. Mm, I know what it was like <laughs> for me because I was where I was, but I don't know what it was like for you and where you were. And you're really just trying to get out of not having to, you know, address or, you know, but this, but even for me, you know, it's even being there where I was, we could be standing, we could be sitting in the same truck. Literally, I've had this experience with one of the guys, one of the dismounts in my vehicle, um, that we remember a pretty significant incident in two totally different ways. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, you know, you taking the time to become culturally competent, um, makes you stand out from other providers who may be serving veterans who don't take that time. Well, and I think you bring up a good point there, Dwayne, as well, in regards to veteran providers who want to help veterans. Um, You know, there's a flip side of that as well, which is that I don't have to necessarily address it because you were there, you know, and so they don't want to get into the issue, right? Or Or there's veterans who have not necessarily done the work that they've needed to do or who don't understand that maybe their experience in the military was different. And so I think that whereas there are a lot of benefits to being a veteran service provider for veterans, there are also benefits to being a civilian one because I don't have a lot. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to go, you know, because I, I don't my life. And so I go, well, no, because you're culturally competent that not all, you do not speak for all veterans, you know? And I I think that's one of the things that's true of, of cultures in general is understanding that that not that you don't speak for all veterans as a veteran provider and and you know I don't speak for all civilians as a civilian provider which is something that takes some getting used to sometimes being put in that civilian category but but I'm quick to get out of it right but and and even then you know there are benefits as you said to not working with someone um who is a, a veteran um I have um you know, recently worked uh, with somebody that said, I literally will not go see anyone unless they're a combat veteran. I don't care. And we have to honor that, of course, um, Absolutely. You know, because that's where that veteran, not, oh, you should and you'll go see who we say you are. That's where that veteran is. And we meet him where that veteran is. So we take it, you know, and we do what we can. Uh, but then I have had clients in which the whole senior NCO army thing was maybe a source of their frustration and they we really didn't get along very well um because I, in just me as uh, as a um uh, retired army non-commissioned officer triggered them literally um right. and, and and so okay let's put you with someone who is not a veteran that's who you're going to work with so understanding that you know not all veterans are going to work with all clinicians and having the flexibility well, number one, having the honesty in ourselves to recognize that I'm not the person uh, for you, and I'm going to do all that I can to find you the person that you need, rather than just signing you off and letting you go. Absolutely. And I think that's just true of cultural competency in general. You know, I mean, if I'm a female, and I would rather see a female therapist, that's going to be honored, I would hope. If I'm a female, but my mother was abusive, and I want to see a male therapist. I mean, it's it's the choice of the client. And I like what you added at the end about finding the right fit for that person, that we, the burden is on us to understand when whatever we carry into the session is ineffective for the client and, and to help find that client find somebody new. And I, I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of the folks have that experience of someone who is compassionate enough to do that, to say, hey, I own it. I, I'm walking in here as this you know, little civilian girl, and, and I might not be the person for you. And I'm not mad about that. The problem isn't you. The problem is the situation. And so, again, it goes to understanding cultural differences, and it goes, again, to, to being aware enough of ourselves as clinicians to be able to, to know that and, and realize that it's, it's a situational situ- issue and not, and not me as a clinician. I'm not a bad therapist because I'm a civilian. Um, but that's not a bad client because the client doesn't want to work with me because I'm a civilian. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that uh, that goes a long way. Um, you know, as you know, um, I've uh, I, I work here with our agency with uh, with several excellent clinicians who are not veterans. Um, I may have uh, a little bit of a shortcut um, with them to building the rapport, but any clinician who takes the time to understand veterans can get there not even eventually, but relatively quickly. 
Um, one of my um, one of my other guests, uh, Jay Knight, he's a Marine, uh, has his own podcast, but he talks about his journey of, of seeking therapy. And he went into his therapist, and his therapist says, well, I'm not sure that uh, I can help you because I'm not a veteran and not familiar with the military. And Jay said, I'm not coming here to talk to you about my veteran stuff because I'm a veteran. I'm here talking to you about my humanity because I'm a human. Nice. Exactly. Yeah. And I think if we remember that as clinicians on all angles of things and working with the veteran population, that's what it takes. Um, it's sad that your your friend had to explain that to the therapist. Um, but, you know, it's a learning curve. And I think that what we do in those situations, hopefully what therapists do in those situations is take it and grow. And and I think, yes, it is a learning situation, but it's also a learning situation with veterans. And it's hard if a veteran is in a place where I finally worked up the courage to reach out for help. Again, the metaphor, uh, I've knocked on the door and the person who answers the door may not be the 100% match that I'm looking for. Maybe I need a little bit of patience um, and, and knock off some rough edges to be able to give it a little bit of time and and maybe help that. You know, and, and, and when we talk about cultural competence, yes, absolutely, it is not the client's role to teach cultural competence to the professional. Um, and, and no professional should understand that. It's one of the reasons why I do the blogs and the, um, uh, and the podcasts is to help other clinicians who may not be familiar with veterans learn something other than having their clients tell them. Uh, and, and that's really the challenge. But it, I think the, um, the, the, the lack of self-condemnation maybe goes, it, it works on both the client and the counselor in this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely, absolutely, I agree with that. I think that's a good point. Um, we're all just people, right? Again, at the end of the day, we're all just people attempting to get through and attempting to, to be understood and to understand. Um, and I think that that if you find that as a veteran seeking services or if you find that as a clinician trying to, trying to expand your practice that, that that's that's good advice on both ends of things now in in you had worked with um trauma significant trauma for for years uh before you started working with veterans and so even though you may not have been culturally competent in in veteran speak so to so to speak um you were clinically competent and i think that's what a lot of our colleagues seem to miss is that um you know I have skills, you know, there's a whole field called existential psychology that helps veterans understand purpose and meaning and, and the lack of purpose, as you said, that they no longer feel connected, um, that clinicians who are not culturally competent don't recognize that that's something that they can actually help with. They just assume all veterans have PTSD. Do you see that? Um, I'm trying to figure out your question on that. I think that PTSD is so easily put in that bucket. Um, and when I think of PTSD, I think of it as, as, a, as, a, as one piece of what the veteran experiences. Um, is that what you're talking about as opposed to like... Yes. Uh, I mean, a then, lot of people are like, I treat PTSD, but not understanding. You know, when I, when a lot of the time when I think about veterans, I think about, I think about people who have, have lost what they once had in the sense of, you know, there's no more, and I said this before, I hear a lot, that I don't have a mission anymore. And we can talk PTSD all day long and flashbacks all day long, but that doesn't fill that void of a loss of mission, of a loss of camaraderie, of a loss of those things. Um, you know, some folks feel isolated and alone because they think they're the only ones that are suffering. And so they, they voluntarily cut themselves off. In their communities, while other, everybody else in their communities cut themselves off as well. I, PTSD is part of the issue, um, but that's, I guess, the diagnosis and not and not the and not the whole picture. Right, and it's um, only one facet of it. Um, and I think that uh, right. you know, we, you as a clinician, or, or anyone who is uh, uh, trained as a mental health professional that maintains, you know, of course, their study and their discipline. Um, they they have tools that can help address that lack of meaning and purpose and lack of mission. They just don't know that it applies to veterans because they've not taken the time to understand that that's an aspect. Oh, that's a terrifying thought, Dwayne. 
Well, I mean, in, in, I mean that it is because it's because significant healing has to occur within a significant relationship in those senses, and you have to understand. I don't know. That's frightening. I, I mean, PTSD is a thing, but but it's part of it's part of this greater picture. What what is the point of you know, if I had a satisfactory life, if I had, if I felt connected, if I felt useful, I could handle the nightmares. I mean, I hear, you know, right. I mean, that's, it is one part of a giant. I mean, you have the wheel that you make the one part of the giant understanding of what it is to be culturally competent. And I guess maybe, maybe that's one of the things that people who, who don't work with veterans, I mean, I guess that's what your point and what you were saying that they, you know, people come in with a diagnosis and when we treat that diagnosis and we send them on their way, um, that's not like that with, with veterans. It's not like that with complex trauma typically. Um, and it's not like that with veterans because it's, it's a much bigger deal. Right. And, and I think that even ties back to um, what you were talking about as resources in the community um, is there's, there's millions of resources. There's millions of people across the U.S., um, but they're only trying to address one aspect of the needs of the veteran. Uh, this is something that before um, I, I moved over here, where I was working full-time at the Crawford House, um, you and I both work with the, uh, the Veterans Trauma Court, so we had residents at the Crawford House who were homeless that were also in the judicial system. So that's two problems. Then you had them being served in a mental health capacity with a different agency. That's a third. A fourth one was trying to get them um, uh, employment. A fifth one was trying to get them long-term housing. And so each of these agencies were dealing with a facet of the condition, but it was the same veteran accessing all of them, and there really wasn't a comprehensive look. And that's where if we're just treating one aspect of what the veteran needs, then we're missing um, the whole picture. Right. And and just like you were talking about with, with the situation with working with someone who's, who's homeless, who's in the criminal justice system, who has mental health stuff going on. I mean, my head is already spinning with the amount of paperwork, with the amount of appointments, with the amount of things I need to remember, the amount of places I need to get. Um I mean, there's all these people involved in my life and they all mean well, but none of them are connected. And, and so then that puts the burden on me to figure it out. And I'm, and I'm the one hurting. Right. And I'm the one, the, the one with the, the uh, most responsibility and even sometimes the least capacity to be able to, to engage that responsibility. And I think that's a really important point. I think obviously our, our clients are responsible ultimately but it's understanding where the bridge of responsibility crosses in, in terms of capacity. You take someone who has a traumatic brain injury, who the family has rejected him. Um, he's homeless. Again, criminal justice is maybe some substance abuse issues on top of mental health. And, and the expectations that we have um, of this person to manage and juggle these things are not realistic. Um, and I think sometimes as service providers, I hear, I hear people get angry at the client for this. I get, I, I, I mean, I, sadly, this is a true statement that they, they get angry when, you know, what do you expect? Like, we have to help, we have to help bridge across that and bring them towards the capacity to have more responsibility. Does that make sense? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's what I think, and, and, and not even just nationwide, but just in, in general, um, in, in communities, just that idea of you know hey veteran what do you need not what do not not what do you need as far as what the first thing you say is what i'm going to address but what is really the underlying aspect of you know what are your needs your fundamental needs um so if they reach out they they go to the um the place for long-term housing but then they say, oh, you need to have a job first. So then they go to the job place and they say, okay, well, you know, for you to get a job, you need to have a stable place to house. And then they're just mm -hmm. ping-ponging back and forth and nothing gets resolved. And no one is helping them, I think, manage that. Right. And let's say this person goes to therapy and the therapist says, we don't, I don't want to talk to you about your housing. I don't want to talk to you about your employment. We're here to talk about your deployment. You know, there that door just got slammed in the face because the the person at the clinician is not seeing the whole picture for the veteran. All the systemic things that work there. And I I hear that sometimes. People are like, Well, when are you gonna do EMDR on so and so? And I'm like, Are you serious? 
<laughs> You've got to be kidding me, right? You're joking. Like, Pro- prolonged exposure doesn't solve homelessness. Maybe no, it was, not. Yeah. No, it does not. Well, I, you know, I, I think that we're, we've got the place, we're play, painting a pretty bleak pr- picture here, Aaron. Give us some hope. I mean, there's, obviously these barriers um, exist, um, but they're, you know, we're, we're trying to overcome them. Yes, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of good work being done. And I think that if, first off, if clinicians and, and service providers are more willing to look at themselves and take steps to be culturally competent and understand some of these concepts, you know, the problem is going to solve itself in many, not totally, but in many ways with that. I think that as much as we can as providers and folks listening to your show who are providers can understand that holistic piece um, in terms of what the veterans needs are and and not just the one facet of it, then, then we can help access that. I think that if, if we, we, if we as therapists are no longer um, a barrier, then that will make a huge difference. I think that if, if the veteran is able to land in the right place, maybe not the first time, but at least the second time with someone who's, who's willing to understand that, um, you know, hopes, there's, there's nothing but hope. Um, nothing at all. I mean, I, and I think that as clinicians, we just have to have a lot of patience and understanding and willingness to not be cookie cutters. Um, you know, we have some, we do some great work. Um, at the Lane Center at the Veterans Health and Trauma Clinic. I know you're doing incredible work there, um, not only with the, 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 with the place you work, but with the side programs that you have going on in terms of some of the nonprofit work. Um, I know here in Colorado Springs, we have, you know, Trauma Court, Veterans Trauma Court, which is, which is an incredible organization that, that helps justice involve veterans to, to, you know, folks who maybe did not get services when they need them, but then is able to get those access. I think that if, if as a nation, we are more willing and able to see this as a, as a societal responsibility, um, I mean, then we can go, we can go so far. There is so much hope. There are good people doing this work. And I, I don't want to discourage people from seeking help. I want to encourage people that there is the right help. They might just not find it right away. Right, and that's something, and you say that, that we as, as mental health professionals in the industry, and one of the reasons why um, even I started the nonprofit and started this podcast is because we need another nonprofit like we need a hole in our head, but the resources just weren't there. Um, mental health professionals are not talking. You know, we're, we, we need better PR, I think, as an industry. Um, to to be able to get the message out that that it's not about waiting until you're in crisis, it's not about um, you know uh, sitting on the couch talking about your mother unless your mother's the problem. Then we talk about your mother all day long, but we'll but talk it, all day about her. Yeah. yeah, but it's not Freudian psychotherapy where we're interpreting your dreams or things like that. It's it's we as mental health professionals have very effective and proven methods to help veterans live the life that they hoped they would live when they left the military. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are out there. Um, and, and I, you know, you said that about your nonprofit, about another hole in the head. I think that we need more nonprofits like yours, not necessarily the nonprofits who, you know, who, who maybe make soap. One. Well, yeah, I was, <laughs> I keep picking on the soap situation. It's such a fabulous one to pick on though, but, but I mean, I think that there, that, that if we, if we actually ask the population what is successful instead of coming up with our own ideas, I mean, you, you said earlier, you know, the, the idea of, you know, here, you come to my office and this is what I can offer you, not what do you need from me. But, but if, if folks who want to do good can actually communicate, ask the community of veterans what would be helpful, that would be a really, really big start. Um, I think mental health, accessible and effective mental health treatment would be high on that list for a lot of people. Um, do, do they believe it's out there? They may not yet. Um, but that's what, I, that's what I appreciate so much about the work that you're doing with this is being able to increase that access and awareness to things that actually are helpful. Now, and, and you just made that a very excellent point is that so many of us, and I'll include myself, um, or, or any, you know, anybody trying to serve veterans that we're in love with our solution to a problem that we're not even certain what the problem is. 
um, we're, we're providing a solution and in love with the solution that we have to provide when the problem, and, and this is what I'm learning, is, is just awareness about veteran mental health and the stigma against seeking help. That's the problem we need to solve first. Then we can start to solve uh, the next problem, the next problem. But you're talking about identifying the problem and then developing a solution, not trying to fit the solution to what I think the problem is. Right. There's the old quote, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But, you know, maybe we should get more tools in our belt and understand maybe what tools are needed um, from from the people before we just start going to the store and buying all sorts of tools that we like. Right. You know, I like this hammer. You know, okay, well, the hammer is only helpful, you know, in X percentage of situations. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think you you're right on target. And in uh, in again, I in what I have found is as I'm going through these series, we could literally talk about this all day. I mean, these are just <laughs> there's so many uh, different facets of of what we're talking about um, that uh, that we're not talking about in public. And and I appreciate you coming on and having the conversation in public. Dwayne, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's been a real, it's been a real treat talking with you. Again, we could talk for hours, but I know time is of the essence. <laughs> well, yes, and and uh, and I appreciate you coming on for this. As I'd mentioned, I was I was hoping to have you and and Valerie and and, and talking specifically about uh, the Lane Center, uh, and have you back on the show at another point. But um, if if people were um, uh, were wanting to get a hold of you and learn more about what you're doing and and things like that, how would they find that out? Um, the main number for the Veterans Health and Trauma Clinic, and it's part of the UCCS Lane Center, um, is two three no two five five eight zero zero three. My direct line that I can answer when I'm not in session, or I can return calls when I'm not in session, is seven one nine two five five eight zero seven two. And I'm going to make sure that uh, links to the website uh, for uh, the Veterans Health and uh, Trauma Clinic are on the newsletter, uh, and also make sure that those uh, those phone numbers are there as well, so veterans can go find those at uh, changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. Once again, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Dwayne. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. So you just listened to an episode with Aaron Fowler talking about the barriers, the external barriers that exist for veterans when seeking mental health. You can find the show notes on this show and many of the things we talked about at either changerpov.com or veteranmentalhealth.com. Looking for episode HST027. This is the third episode of Veteran Mental Health Boot Camp, a series brought to you by the Change Your POV Podcast Network and the Headspace and Timing Podcast. If you're a veteran or service member, the family member of one, or support veterans in any way, then this series is designed to help you understand more about veteran mental health. just now getting into the series, go back and check out episode HST025, where we introduce the concept of looking beyond PTSD and TBI in regards to veteran mental health. Make sure you subscribe to the Change Your POV podcast network on your podcast player of choice and sign up for updates at changeyourpov.com and veteranmentalhealth.com. We would love to hear your feedback regarding this series and all of the shows in the Change Your POV podcast network. You can do so by visiting our Facebook group, leaving a comment, or review on iTunes. Remember, veteran mental health and wellness is the basis of a successful post-military life and one that all who answered our nation's call to serve deserves. Remember, brothers and sisters, you're not alone, ever.
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.